The following sermon by Nelson Atwood was recorded at Noble Park Evangelical Baptist Church. For more information, please visit their website at www.noblebaptist.org.au That's www.noblebaptist.org.au Well, good morning everybody. Good to see you all here. Good to be back. Thank you very much, Leah and Christopher, for playing this morning. Take your Bibles, please, and we'll go to the book of Ephesians again. We were standing outside, and Poovin was sharing with me uh, what he'd been reading in Jeremiah 29, and I was so encouraged that the Lord had laid something on his heart that fits so well with what the Lord had laid on my heart for the message this morning that I, I must admit I was a bit of a bully and I pushed him as hard as I could to share what he had been enjoying because I knew how well it would fit. And it's such an encouragement to see that God is working and laying the same thing on different one's heart. It is an encouragement to keep going. I want to give you a couple of goals that I have for this message this morning. Number one, The goal is to understand that all that God has done for us, which Paul describes in 1 and 2 and 3 of Ephesians, it's not to be experienced merely as deliverance from death and hell and wrath, but what God has done for us is an introduction into a relationship with God. When we pray, we often use the term Father. Fatherhood is a relationship that we have been called into by God through Christ, who is the lover of our souls. That's goal number one, to understand that we're called into a relationship. Goal number two is this, to understand that the key to living out all that Paul will call us to in Ephesians 4, 5, and 6 is to be in a living, deep, intimate relationship with God that is growing deeper every single day. Relationships are not static. They grow. They move. Sometimes, sadly, they fade and they grow shallower. But God has called us into a relationship with Him that is to grow deeper each day. Third goal is this, to encourage and spur all of us on to pray, to pray and to plead with God for an ever deeper, ever growing relationship with God for all of us. That we all together, not only our relationships with each other, but also our relationships with, with God would grow deeper and deeper as the days go by. Now, for me personally, this is one of those messages that I wish I could do what Paul Washer describes where you preach as fast as you can. And then you run around and sit down in the chair and listen, because I need to hear probably more than most of you. And it's a challenge to my own heart. Sometimes when preaching comes and you're called by God and uh, it lays a message on your heart that you know has more to do with you than most of the people in the room, it is a great difficulty. And I don't ever want anybody, including me, to get the idea that I stand here and preach because I got it all figured out or because I've worked through all these things and I've got them all sorted out. I don't. I'm learning right alongside of you. It just so happens that my voice is the one that 
I pray God will use to speak to all of our hearts. All right. Let's read together Ephesians 3, verses 14 to 21, and then we'll pray and then we'll move into the message. Paul says to the Ephesians in verse 14 of chapter 3, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Loving Father, we give you thanks again this morning for our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, we thank you, we rejoice, we give glory to you, O God, this morning, because you have called us into a relationship with you. And Father, it is our desire this morning that that relationship would grow, that we would know you deeper and deeper every day, that we would know you like Paul knew you and like David knew you. And like Moses knew you. Father, we thank you for our time in the word. Father, again, I pray that my voice would end at the edge of the pulpit and your voice would speak to every heart in the room. Lord, meet us where we are, we pray, and speak to us and challenge us and encourage us in the things of God. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Just a reminder, there's a little note sheet in your bulletin there, and you can follow along. There are four points listed there, but that's not really four points. It's actually one long point with two short points on each end and then a conclusion at the end. So it's not, don't worry, we're not going to be here for, well, until it reaches 38 degrees outside. We'll be out of here before that, I promise. Outline before there I want to give to you is this. Number one, there's a longing to know God. Number two, there is a journey into the Holy of Holies, and I'll explain that as we get there. Number three, there is an inadequate heart. And number four, there is a prayer for God to strengthen our hearts, and that's Paul's prayer for us. So first of all, a longing to know God deeply. Remind again that we have been created for a relationship with God. As you read through the Bible and as you go through the Old Testament stories, the New Testament stories, you're going to come across men and women who had a deep, intimate relationship with God. I'm going to give you some text from the Old Testament to sort of show some of those relationships. In Exodus 33, the Bible tells us that whenever Moses entered the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face, just as a man speaks to his friend. 
When Moses returned to the camp, his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. I want us, I want you, and I want me to be like Moses and Joshua, where an intimacy with God is the ultimate thing that they had. God spoke with Moses face to face as a man speaks with his friend. I don't know what sort of friendships you have in your life. All of us need godly, biblical friends. He's not here, but Daryl was an elder at me, with me at Casey Bible Church, and he and I had such a relationship that we could speak totally openly and honestly face-to-face with each other as a friend-to-friend. But the Bible says that Moses spoke with God. God spoke to Moses as a man speaks to his friend. That's a deep, intimate relationship. Don't forget Joshua, young man. There's some young men here this morning. Their delight or his delight was to stay behind in the presence of God. Even when Moses went back to the camp to carry on the duties, Joshua probably should have gone with him to be with Moses to help him through his role and his work. But Joshua loved to stay behind in the presence of God and commune with God. Secondly, James 2.23 tells us that Abraham believed God, and he was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. Of all the titles and memories that could be attributed to us, that's one above all. He was the friend of God. I don't know what your relationship with God is like this morning, but my, my call to you, my plea with you is to consider that relationship whether you know God as a friend. And I don't mean this level. I still mean this level. It's still, he's very much God. He's very much the holy of all. He's very much the king of glory. But we have been invited into a relationship, called into a relationship with him as our friend. Philippians 3 verse 10, it's Paul speaking again. And he writes, that I may know him. And the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Paul's words are more a deep, prayerful longing than a testimony to a reader or a recipient. Paul longed. He wanted to know Christ. And this is a guy who knew Christ, who knew God more deeply than probably any man alive today, and yet he could still say, writing from prison toward the end of his life, that I may know him, and know him more, know him deeper. The psalmist in Psalm 42, As a deer pants for the water brook, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Our call to worship this morning, which proven read, Psalm 73, Whom have I in heaven but you, and besides you I desire nothing on earth. Do you catch the tension? These writers were men who knew God. They had a deep relationship with God, and yet there's a longing in their hearts to have more of God. You say, what has this got to do with Psalm, or sorry, Ephesians 3, 14 through 19? Paul is praying that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. What he's saying is not talking about salvation there. He's talking about the deep, rich, full possession of Christ in our hearts. 
He's talking about a deep, intimate relationship with God. He wants the Ephesians to go beyond just knowing that they're saved, that they're brought into the family of God, brought into the kingdom of God. He wants them to have that deep, rich relationship with Jesus Christ. How will they do all the things that Paul calls them to do in Ephesians 4 and 5 and 6 if they are not first in that relationship with Christ? Ephesians 3, 14 and 19, 21 there, sorry, is very much a hinge point. He's praying that everything they've learned so far about what God has done for them and brought them into, they will be in a deep relationship with Christ so that as they go forward into the practical application of all those truths, they will have the spiritual strength with Christ in their hearts to live out the truth and the reality of the Christian life. And brothers and sisters in Christ, to expect us to live out some of the things he speaks about in Ephesians 4, 5, and 6 without that deepening relationship with Christ is folly. We can't. We deeply need it. In Acts 13, verse 22, Paul in his sermon relates that God described David as a man after his own heart. These men, Moses and Abraham, David and Paul, many others, knew God deeply and intimately, and yet they all craved an ever deeper relationship with God. Our goal must be, as believers in Christ, to have and enjoy a deep and yet ever deepening relationship with the living God, above and beyond the ministry we're involved in. God did not save me to preach. He saved me so that I could have a relationship with him. The preaching part is far out there compared to that. He didn't save you to go out and be an evangelist. He saved you to have a relationship with him. He didn't save you to play music for church. He saved you to have a relationship with him. That is above everything else. The work of the church... God can do without our help. Don't ever think for a split second that God desperately needs us to do the work of the church. He delights to use us, but we're like a flea holding on to a giant steel cable saying, yeah, we'll hang it, we got it, we're holding on. The cable doesn't need the flea's help. But God delights to use his children, his sons and his daughters to do the work of the church. But he's far more interested in your relationship with him than what you do at church or what you do in evangelism, what you do in teaching Sunday school or any of those other things. It's the relationship first. So I want to take us this morning on a journey, on kind of a walk It's not a literal walk, it's very much a figurative journey to see how our relationship with God through Christ, how it began and how it can and must deepen. And all of this is my way to try and unpack what Paul's doing as he hinges from Ephesians 1, 2, and 3 into Ephesians chapter 4. 
Now, just to give a little caveat, this journey describes things that Christ does for us in a one after another fashion. Many of those things are done simultaneously at the same moment, but I'm just describing them in a process because it's the only way that we can really understand them. We're going to use a pathway from outside the tabernacle all the way into the Holy of Holies to describe this journey. Now, before we take a step on that journey, we're going to remember a couple of things. Again, remember that we were created for a relationship with God, a relationship of worship and love and adoration and deep intimacy. We were created to know God, our Creator. We were created to enjoy the heights of intimacy with God. We were created to glorify God above and beyond everything else. Second, remember this, our sin has destroyed that relationship with God and God demands a payment, a righteous payment for that sin and its death. But praise the Lord. Thirdly, God has provided a way back. God in love and grace will accept an innocent substitute for us so that we don't have to die because one died in our place. We are called by God to come and worship Him. And in a sense, that call is like calling the people of Israel to come to the entrance of the tabernacle. And that idea of tabernacle, by the way, has the idea of God dwelling with man. When John's writing his gospel in John chapter 1 and verse 14, it says the Word became flesh and the Word there dwelt. In the original, the Word actually is the Word He tented amongst us. He tabernacled amongst us. He was dwelling with the people. Jesus dwelled right with the people. And the idea of God dwelling with us is all wrapped up in that tabernacle. And the call to come and worship, we start the entrance of the tabernacle and we're still in our sin. And there, as it were, Jesus meets with us and he reveals himself to us as both a lion and a lamb. He reveals himself to us in love as a lion and calls us to submit to his kingship in love for us. He also offers himself to be our lamb, our innocent victim who will take our place. He is our lamb for the burnt offering. We in faith. We look to him. Do you remember that moment when John is on the beach and he's, he's baptizing people and, and he looks up and here he comes walking down the road. And Jesus comes walking towards John on the Jordan. And John turns around, John the Baptist, and he shouts out, Behold the Lamb of God. Do you catch what he's saying? He isn't just saying, turn around and look. He's saying, look in faith. Behold, that's the one. And there at the entrance, the tabernacle, as it were, we look in faith and we see the Lion and the Lamb in love for us, our journey begins when we look by faith towards the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is the lion who rules over us as a king. And he is the lamb who offers himself as our substitute to take our place and die on our behalf. As we move into the tabernacle, the way is blocked by a great bronze altar. Heat and fire, blood and smoke, burning and death are all around that scene. In the old days, the man would take and he'd lay his hands upon the head of that animal and he would confess his sins with his mouth over the head of that animal. And as he had his hand on the head, 
He was, in a sense, transferring or placing his sin on the animal, confessing it with his mouth, and he was identifying himself with that animal. He would then take that animal, lift it up, and he would hold it, and with a knife he would slit the lamb's throat, and the blood would gush into a bowl. The blood would be taken, and the priest would take a little bit of the blood, and they would throw it against the side of the tabernacle, and it would splatter across this tabernacle. Then they would pour all that blood around the outside edge of the altar. Then they would take and they would offer that animal, and the animal would be burnt, wholly consumed. In love for us, Jesus Christ, our Lamb of God, dies for us. His blood is splattered on the altar. It's poured out in the ground. He Himself is wholly consumed by fire. On the cross, it wasn't a literal fire, but it was the fiery wrath and anger of God against us for our sin. He is the one who shed his lifeblood as an acceptable payment. But on the cross at his death, if you remember the story, the Roman soldier, in order to prove that Jesus was dead, he took a spear and he found that spot underneath the ribs there and he pushed the spear into the heart of Jesus. And as he pulled it out, out flowed out of his body and down to the ground was blood and water mixed together. You see, as a person dies, I'm not a medical dude, so I'm only giving the best understanding of it, but the, there's a fluid, a clear fluid that separates. And in death, that fluid looks just like water and it rushes down the side of Jesus' body and water and blood flow down. You see, the blood speaks of the idea of payment. God demanded a payment for our sin. It was His death and His blood proved that. It also, the water's there and the water's a different picture. The water is a picture of washing and cleansing. Now our journey has begun. We've looked in faith. We've identified ourselves with Christ who is our Lamb. And we have begun the walk of faith to know God by experience. And then Jesus, as it were, takes us and he leads us past the great bronze altar where it speaks of his death. And he leads us to a great big brown bronze wash basin. And you say, why would he do that? Why does it have to be a wash basin there? And it's the idea, it's a picture for us of the fact that we are washed clean in the water. And Jesus, as it were, takes and he immerses us into that water and washes us clean. You say, why do we have to be washed? Well, sin has two effects. Sin affects God. It offends Him and it angers Him and it cuts us off from Him. But sin also affects us. It stains us and contaminates us and makes us dirty. It leaves us with guilt. The first time I really understood this, I was a young fellow and I'd been caught doing something wrong, which was fairly frequently in my home. And my dad came in to, to talk to me about that thing I'd done wrong. And you know what I did? I did this. I just looked down. He said, why are you looking down? And I, of course, I didn't want to meet his eyes, right? Like nobody wants to look at their dad when they're getting yelled at because it's just so uncomfortable. And I'm looking down. He said, you know why you're looking down? I said, uh, you know, I mean, I wasn't going to say I didn't want to look at you. Right? That would have been kind of embarrassing. So I just looked down. And he said, you're looking down because you've got guilt. There's a guilty feeling inside of you and it causes shame. And so you look down. 
And the moment Jesus takes us and he washes us clean in his blood and that guilt is washed away, our conscience is cleansed, the Bible says in Hebrews 9, by the washing of the blood of Christ, and that guilt is washed away and we are set free. You know that moment when you you confess something to somebody and you seek their forgiveness and they grant you that forgiveness in the moment, that release that you have. You feel like you're walking on air because you've been set free from guilt and a stained conscience. Well, Christ, in love for us, He washed us clean. He didn't just pay the penalty for our sin. He also, He washed us. And he leads us forward a little further in the journey. We come to this great big tabernacle tent and it's about 15 feet wide and 15 feet high and about 30 something odd feet long. And this big huge tent that's got uh, gold covered boards that stand up 15 feet in the air and overwrapping the whole thing is a layer of curtains and barring the way into the front of the tabernacle there is five pillars across the front and a big heavy curtain hangs down and Jesus takes and he pushes the curtain aside and we step inside this what would be a very very dark room. Except on one side of the room, there's a beautiful lampstand standing there, and there's a blaze of light. And all across the inside of this beautiful tabernacle, the gold plating on all the pieces sparkles and shines. And that lampstand is a beautiful picture. It pictures, first of all, that Christ is the light of the world, lighting everything up. But there's another picture, too. It's also a picture of the fact that Christ uh, has blessed us and sealed us and fills us with the Holy Spirit. You see, how do you get that picture? The one of the roles and jobs of the Holy Spirit is to always illuminate Scripture to us and point us so that we can see Christ. And Christ, in love for us, seals us with His Holy Spirit. And the work of the Holy Spirit is to produce in us the fruit singular, of the Spirit, which produces Christ-likeness. The Spirit of God works in us. Now we've been set free from the penalty of sin. We've been washed clean. Now He works inside of us to change us and make us more like Christ. And the fruit of the Spirit produces love so that we love as Christ loved. The fruit of the Spirit produces joy so that we have the joy that Jesus had. The fruit of the Spirit produces peace from God. It produces patience in us. So we are patient with others as Christ is patient with us. He is, we have that kindness so that we're kind as Christ was kind to us and so on. The Spirit's work is often described as an illuminating work, like a lampstand that casts its light so that we can all see, so the Spirit shines, so that Christ is displayed to us and in us. Our journey of an ever-deepening relationship with Jesus Christ is only possible because of the work of the Holy Spirit in us to enlighten us to see the, the beauty of Christ, to see the Word of Christ, to see the truth of Christ. In love for us, Jesus seals us and fills us with His Holy Spirit. But you know what? There's even more. On the other side of the tabernacle room, there is a low table, quite a bit smaller than this one. And piled up on that table are stacks of 
flat, fresh loaves of bread. It was the loaves of bread the priests could eat and use as they went through their daily work. And it's like Jesus takes us over and he reaches out and takes a piece of bread and he hands us that piece of bread and he feeds us. And every day as we are in God's word, we're listening to what God says to us. He is feeding us every single day. Just like the manna that fell from heaven, six out of seven days, the people of Israel went out and they gathered up the manna, took it back, and they were fed every single day with bread from heaven. Jesus said to the people in the book of John, I am the bread from heaven. And every single day as we grow in our experience, Jesus is feeding us with his word. Poovin was describing outside the joy of that moment when he read that passage. He's read it dozens of times, probably more. And for the first time, or at least this time anyway, it leapt off the page to him and it was such a wow moment. Jesus was feeding him with the bread of his word. And Poovin was greatly encouraged and spurred on because he saw and he fed on what Jesus was giving him in that moment. Our experience of God through Christ comes as every day we feed on what he gives us. And I marvel how times you read through the Bible and you just, just like happened to Poovin, the verses leap off the page and they impress on our hearts deeply. That's God communicating with us. There's another way too. In the very center of the tabernacle. For years I thought that the, the Ark of the Covenant was the center point. It's actually not. It's actually at the back of the tabernacle, behind that veil. We'll talk about that in a second. But right in the very center, both ways, in that room is a little altar. It's small in this pulpit. But yay wide, yay deep, and about yay high. And uh, on that thing, it's overlaid with gold. They spread coals of fire over that whole thing. They take incense, handfuls of ground up spices and oil, and they sprinkle it all over those coals. And smoke rises up above the altar, and and it flows up, ever going upwards. It's a picture. It's a beautiful picture of the fact that, that prayer is a key part. It's a beautiful picture of the fact that our response to God comes in worshipful prayer. It's also a beautiful picture of the fact that Christ never fails nor ceases in His work of prayer for us. The height of worship, brothers and sisters, is worshipful prayer. When we stand before God in His presence or kneel before God in His presence, whether it's in a great group like this or by ourselves somewhere off in the woods or in a closet or wherever we want to go, and there our heart communes with God. Moments when we stand in absolute silence and solitude before God and our spirit communes with His Spirit and we hear Him speak through His Word in our hearts. It's prayer. What did Jesus say? My father's house is to be a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of thieves. It's prayer. The height of worship, the height of response, that's, that's fellowship, that's relationship, isn't it? How is my relationship with Heather deepened? By ignoring her? No, trust me, doesn't work. <laughs> that's never going to happen. How's my relationship with my friend deepened or made richer or informed? How do I minister to my friend by ignoring him? 
No, by communication, by intimate relating with the other person. And prayer is the absolute epitome of that. We come in faith and we speak to God and we read the scriptures in prayer. We prayerfully read and we read prayerfully so that as we're reading and as we're praying, there is a communication back and forth. That's the deepening of that relationship. There's something I want to emphasize before we move to the last point of the analogy, the journey analogy. I want to emphasize this, and you may have picked it up as I've been going through. It is the love of God in all these things. In love, Christ revealed himself to us. In love, Christ died for us. In love, Christ washed us. In love, Christ both sealed us and fills us with his Holy Spirit. In love, Christ daily feeds us. And in love, Christ ceaselessly prays for us. Because of all that Christ has done and is doing, we are being rooted and grounded in God's love. That's what part of what Paul is talking about back in Ephesians 3. But listen, there is more to knowing God than all I've said so far. There's more to it than standing outside the Holy of Holies. Because in love, Christ calls us into a deep relationship with him. We're called on to come in, to enter inside that Holy of Holies. Enter in through the veil. At Jesus' death, you know the story, the veil was torn apart from top to bottom. At Christ's death, the way into God was open. But listen, it's not a given. It's not an automatic that we enter in. And sadly, this is where so many of us pause in our journey of knowing Christ. In a sense, we've come all the way from the outside. We've come past the bronze altar. We've seen where Jesus has died for us. We've had faith in God. We've walked. We've been washed. We've been filled with the Spirit. We take daily from the bread that God gives us and we pray, but somehow we never go beyond that into the very presence of God to enjoy that deeper relationship. Listen. It takes us back to Ephesians 3, 14 and 19. Paul prays for the Ephesians and for us that God would grant us three things. He prays that from the riches of His glory, God would grant us, number one, to be strengthened with power through the Spirit in the inner man. Secondly, he prays for Christ to dwell in our hearts through faith. And thirdly, he prays for us to be filled up to all the fullness of God. That dwelling in our hearts, it's not a salvation point. It's beyond that. He's saying like Christ may possess your hearts to the fullest and the richest levels. It's, it's like taking a glass, right? And you take some water and you pour the water into the glass and you fill up. You fill up the, the bottom 80% or don't tell anybody. You fill up the bottom 35%. You say, what's in the glass? You say, well, there's water in the glass. Is it full? No, but there is water in the glass. And what Paul is saying, listen, Ephesians, if you live your lives knowing that all that Christ has done for you, 
and all that he has done to bring you into that relationship. But you don't go beyond that into the holy of holies. You don't go beyond into the full, rich possession of Christ. You'll live this Christian life with Christ possessing some of your hearts. But what he says here is he says... um, that he would grant you, according to the rich of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell. That may dwell means not just this much. It means all the way up to the very top and overflowing. And the problem, brothers and sisters, is so many of us are living with this much, or dare I say, even less than this. Yeah, we believe in Christ. Yeah, we live by faith. Yes, we're feeding daily. Yes, we enter into prayer. But that relationship has become static. It's stopped. And Paul says, I'm pleading with God that He would give you the strength in the Spirit, sorry, in the inner man, through His Spirit, in your heart, so that Christ may fully possess you. You say... That sounds crazy. Doesn't, isn't that all there in the moment we believe? I believe it begins when we believe. But listen to what Paul said. He got this. He said in uh, Philippians 3, he says, That I may know him. This is late in his life. If, if that knowing is salvation, Paul has been doing all of his ministry and apostolic work all the way through up into this late point in his life. He's now in prison. He's still saying that God may save me. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, I know him so much, but I want to know him more. It's like having a relationship with your husband, your wife. You get married and you know them a little bit. And you go on your honeymoon, you know them a little more, and the years go by, and Heather and I were marveling. Our anniversary was just about a month ago now, a bit more than a month. And we were marveling at how much more, how much better, how much deeper we know each other now after 24 years than the day we... And we thought back then that we were wildly in love. We barely knew what love was all about. But over 24 years, it's grown and grown and grown and grown and grown and grown. And the reality is, brothers and sisters, so many of us as Christians have, in a sense, gotten married, to use that analogy, to Christ. And that intimacy, that level of knowledge, that level of love has stopped right there. And Paul is saying, listen, I'm praying that God would strengthen you in the inner man through the power of the Holy Spirit with God's power so that you may know Christ. So that Christ may possess your hearts in the deepest, richest, most possible way. And it isn't just so that we can do all the things that He calls us to in Ephesians 4, 5, and 6 and the rest of the New Testament. It's because He wants us to have that incredible relationship with God that is possible. Which brings us back to the last point, or the third point, the thoroughly inadequate heart. Paul's prayer addresses the great problem that exists. The heart of man, unstrengthened, cannot handle this level of love 
and intimacy and relationship. The mind of man, unstrengthened, cannot handle this love and depth of knowledge. The intellect of man is unable to cope with it. The spirit of man is unable to cope with so great an inhabitant as the Lord Jesus Christ. The finite cannot contain what is essentially infinite. Listen to what Solomon said. He was dedicating the temple and he said, But will God indeed dwell with mankind on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house which I have built, the heart of man, unstrengthened, is unable to cope with the immensity of Christ, with the immensity of his love, with the greatness of that relationship that he has called us into. I was trying to find a way to to sort of illustrate the idea Who's ever heard of Canis Majoris? It's one of the biggest stars in the universe that they've found so far. To give you an idea, Canis Majoris is 2 billion kilometers in diameter. And what Paul is praying for is like that Canis Majoris, 2 billion kilometers in diameter, squeezing it into a little tiny thimble. He's praying that God will strengthen our hearts so that Christ may dwell in our hearts. He may fully possess us. So we may go through that veil into the holy of holies, into the very presence of God, and know intimacy unlike any other intimacy. But brothers and sisters, that's what we were created for. He designed us to have that relationship. That strengthening, by the way, requires our full and complete surrender to Christ and to the Holy Spirit. On the back side of your little note sheet there, I put some questions to consider. One of them I want you to consider when you get home, when you get a moment by yourself, is what have you allowed into your life? Sinful habits, sinful actions, relationships of one kind or another that are going to hinder you from that deep relationship with Christ. And the call is, are you willing to put them aside, to move away from them that you might move closer to Christ? Brothers and sisters, this is the call for us. Number one, don't be satisfied with a distant relationship with Christ. Paul refused to be satisfied like that. He wanted an ever-deepening relationship. The psalmist was not satisfied. His soul thirsted for God. It wasn't just that he didn't know God. He already knew something of God, but because he had a little taste of God, he wanted more. One writer described it as a holy, H-O-L-Y, holy dissatisfaction in God. Meaning that as much of God as we could get, which was immensely satisfying to the human soul, because we knew there was more, we keep going back for more and back for more and back for more. And Paul is saying that I may know him. He's praying that we'll be strengthened with the Holy Spirit in our inner man so that we may have Christ dwelling in our hearts to the fullest, richest measure. Don't be satisfied with a distant relationship with Christ. It's not okay to say, you know, I know I'm saved, but I'm just going to go out and live any way I like because, you know, I can get the best of both worlds. 
There is huge problems with that theology. Number two, pray and plead with God to strengthen your own heart. Yes, begin by praying for yourself. Plead with God to strengthen your heart so that Christ may dwell there in the fullest measure. And thirdly, obviously pray and plead with God to strengthen others' hearts also. Pray that God would strengthen all of us with power through His Spirit in the inner man so that we will all enter into a deeper, more intimate relationship with Christ. Why is it there's so much strife and toil inside the church? This is all leading into where he's going next in Ephesians 3, 4, 5, and 6. How we get along with each other in the church. Why is there so much strife? Why do we see Christians behaving so badly and tearing apart and, and relationships falling apart and anger doing this and, and all sorts of most ungodly, unchristian things happening inside the church? It's because as immature and weak Christians, we've settled for far less than what we could have in knowing Christ. And living as babes and children in the faith, we have grown accustomed to behaving just like children. You don't believe me? Read 1 Corinthians 3. It's exactly what Paul says to the Corinthians. You're immature, you're carnal, you haven't grown up. You, you need to be fed again with the milk of the Word so you can grow up. And part of that is this exactly what he's talking about here, being strengthened through the power of the Holy Spirit in the inner man so that Christ may dwell inside of us so we're changed to be more like Christ. If You get like the people you hang around with, right? Isn't that true? My wife would laugh at me because the phone would ring and I'd answer the phone and I'd just almost unconsciously start speaking like the guy on the end of the phone. My friend Chris, he, he was, uh, he's French-Canadian, he, he thinks in French and speaks English, and he has a very funny way of talking at times. And she'd laugh. I'd say, what? And she'd go, you just sound just like him when you're talking to him on the phone to him. And we spent so much time together working in a workshop, and, and I just learned to speak the way he spoke, with sometimes the syntax... Not the vocabulary, by the way. I'll add that too. He had some interesting vocabulary. But I learned to speak the way he did. What's the point? The point is we become like the people we spend time with. And when Christ fully possesses our hearts and the Spirit of God begins to work to change and grow us and mature us, we become more like Christ. Imagine if this church was filled with Christ's. Every seat was occupied by Jesus Christ in a different form. Now think about how that is really the way it should be. If your seat was occupied by Jesus Christ, if every seat in this room was occupied by Jesus Christ, do you think we would have struggles and strife and problems? There would be a fellowship like heaven, exactly like heaven. You say, but we're never going to get there. No, you're right. We won't get all the way there. But Paul is praying that we'll be filled with Christ, that he will dwell in our hearts, that we'll grow up and be more like Christ, and then we'll begin to relate to one another more like Christ-related. We pray, we plead with God to strengthen each other, 
and we live in a growing, deepening relationship with Christ. We live like Paul, who said, I count everything as human waste compared to the excellency of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. We live like Moses, who would go out to the tabernacle and he would commune with God face to face. We can go into our prayer closets or our cars or wherever we are in a crowded room or in completely by ourselves out on a beach somewhere. And we can commune with God face to face as a man talks to his friend. We can be like Joshua, who when everybody else went back to doing what they were doing, Joshua chose to stay in the presence of God. Why did Joshua make one of the most, one of the greatest leaders of the Israelite nation in those days? Because he had an intimate knowledge of God. He knew God, unlike many other. I was reading the other day about Caleb. I love that verse, the way the Bible puts it. He had a peculiar spirit. <laughs> I like that. There was something very different about Caleb. He walked and he followed the Lord with all his heart. In a sense, he knew exactly what we're talking about here. He knew God, unlike most of his friends and most of the people around him. I hadn't planned to say this, but I'll add this anyway. You make a decision like this, in a sense, to step past the altar of incense and right into the Holy of Holies. You make a decision that Christ will, that you will pray, that God will strengthen your spirit that Christ may dwell there and you desire to live that life, I promise you, you will probably walk it alone. Because the reality is, sadly, very sadly, so many Christians are too content, too easily satisfied with a partial knowledge of Christ rather than yearning and craving and giving up everything to have a deep knowledge of Christ. Joshua was alone in the tabernacle. Paul knew what it was to be alone. Did you notice Jesus? He went out by himself to a deserted place and there he prayed all night. He went up on a mountain by himself and there he prayed all night. Paul Washer loves to tell the story that when he first got into ministry, his pastor called him in his office and he said, Paul, listen, let me ask you something. You, you feel called by God to be a pastor? Yes, sir, he said. He said, can you be alone? And Paul initially thought that that man was asking him, can you stand by yourself when everybody turns against you? That's not what he meant. He learned later that the man was asking him, Paul, can you be alone with God? when nobody else wants to come in. There's an old hymn. The gist of it is, though everybody else will turn back, I will follow Christ. I will walk it even though nobody go with me. I will walk with Christ. Paul is praying. Brothers and sisters in Christ, listen. You want to pray for each other? I plead with you that you do. You want to pray the deepest, best thing you can pray? When we're going through hardships, financial, medical, physical, relationship hardships, work hardships, and all those other things that we pray about, pray for one another that God would strengthen us 
in our spirit, in our heart, in the inner man, so that Christ may richly dwell there. Because in knowing Christ in that way, like Paul knew Him, like David knew Him, like Moses knew Him, like Joshua knew Him, it will get us through the darkest valleys that this life can bring at us. We live in that relationship. We spend time with God. We pray for one another. We pray for ourselves. I want to take you back to that text that Poovin began with this morning. Take your Bibles and flip over to Jeremiah 29. We're going to read this and then we'll close in prayer and then we'll sing the benediction together. I, I just marveled when he told me about his discovery in the Word because it tied in so perfectly with what God laid on my heart. Jeremiah 29 and verse, we'll read that passage again, verses 10 through 14. The Bible says, For thus says the Lord, When seventy years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you, and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. And I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And he goes on to describe the things he will give back to them. But I want to emphasize those points. You will seek me. Prayer is not about seeking goods and goodies for each other. Prayer is fundamentally about seeking God. You will seek me. And the great promise that goes right behind it, you will find me. Paul is praying that God would strengthen them so that Christ would possess them fully. You'll seek me and you'll find me. It's exactly the same thing. You'll seek me and you'll find me when you search for me with all your heart. Brothers and sisters in Christ, I plead with you this morning. I plead with all of us. Seek the Lord. Seek the strengthening that He provides that Christ may fully possess our hearts, that we might live and walk in that relationship which we were called to. Would you stand with me? We're going to pray and then uh, we'll sing the, the benediction. O oh God, our God, how great is your name. How marvelous is your love. Father, the, the height and the length and the breadth and the depth of the love is something, of your love is something that we are yet grasping to understand. And Father, to know that you have met us you have provided the Lord Jesus Christ to be our Lamb, to take away our sin. You have called us to submit 
to the kingship, the lordship of Jesus Christ. Father, we give you thanks this morning that in love he died for us to pay our penalty. In love, O God, he washed us clean from guilt and the stain of sin. In love, he sealed us with his Holy Spirit. In love, he daily feeds us from himself, from his word. In love, he never ceases to pray for us and calls us to pray to him for ourselves and each other. In love, he has called us into the deepest relationship that we will ever know. Father, help us. Father, I plead with you that you would work in the heart of every single person in this room, mine too. Father, I pray that you would strengthen the hearts of every person at Noble Park Baptist Church. Strengthen us, O God, in the inner man with the power of God through the Holy Spirit that Christ may fully, deeply, richly possess us. Father, we would join with Paul and we would pray with him that we may know him. Father, help us. I plead with you, O God, that we would not accept a glass half full version of Christianity, of a relationship with Christ, but that we would live striving always for a glass overflowing relationship with Jesus Christ. Father, it is a call to prayer. Father, we thank you this morning that you hear our prayers. Father, I plead with you that you would again do a work in this church. Do a work in our hearts, O God. Do a work in the hearts of the lives of men and women around this church. Father, that the numbers may be added to the kingdom. Father, we pray again for the work that's going on overseas, mission work. Father, we pray for the Wetzels in particular and the Pyatts. Lord, we think about the Gillettes too and some of the medical emergencies that they're enduring right now. We plead with you, O God, that you would strengthen them Father, for the same reason, that they might know you deeply and intimately as they go through these things. Father, we thank you for our time in the Word. Thank you for this church. Father, we plead with you for your blessing. And we give thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.